In the last chapter of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the prophet said in the last paragraph of his prophecy, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Those are the very last words of the Old Testament and of the prophet Malachi as he signs off before 400 years of silence. Now we read in our Bible study last week in the early part of Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist who will be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the characters in our study, that he would go before Jesus Christ in the spirit and the power of Elijah and that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And thus, what we understand is that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of what Malachi was talking about in that last paragraph of his prophecy when God said through him that he would send Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now that has been and remains a source of confusion for some. And the reason for that is because John the Baptist was John the Baptist, not Elijah the prophet. And to add to that confusion, when John the Baptist was asked outrightly if he was Elijah. In John chapter 1, verse 21, John replied that no, he was not Elijah the prophet. Now, to add even more confusion to that, a little bit later on in Jesus' ministry, when his disciples were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration with him, Three of his disciples asked Jesus the question and they said, why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered them by saying, I say unto you that Elijah indeed has come, past tense, and they have done to him whithersoever they wanted. In other words, you know, speaking of how they killed John the Baptist. But then Jesus said this, he said, but I tell you that Elijah will yet Come, And he speaks of it as something that is future. And then it says that then the disciples perceived and understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And so what's the answer there? Is John the Baptist the Elijah that will come? Or is it something that is yet future? And the answer is yes. (laughs) That for both comings of Christ, the first and the second coming... God will send a messenger that will prepare the way before him. And it was John the Baptist who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. There are two comings, and thus the prophecy of Malachi applies to both the first and the second coming. Now, it's interesting, if you look again at that verse at the end of Malachi, it speaks of the day of the Lord in two ways. It says, the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And the ministry of Elijah in both instances is to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now we know in Jesus' first coming, the ministry of John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah was successful. He turned the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, and he prepared the way for the coming of Christ. 
But when Elijah will come for the second coming, the hearts of the fathers will not be turned to the children, nor the children to the fathers. And God will indeed smite the earth with a curse. And that will be what happens in the last days. Elijah, no doubt, being one of the two witnesses that will come uh, during the first three and a half years of the tribulation upon the earth. So thus, last week in our study, as we saw the preparation for the birth of John the Baptist, he will be the forerunner for Jesus Christ in his first coming or the incarnation uh, of his uh, existence in human flesh in the world. We saw that the angel Gabriel was sent to Zacharias and Elizabeth, John's parents. And we saw that they were old, well-stricken in years, that they were barren and unable to have children. But yet God said that he was going to miraculously open the womb of Elizabeth and that she would bring forth a son and call his name John. And we saw that Zechariah stood in doubt of that and asked for a sign. And the sign that he received was that he would be mute and deaf, that he would not be able to speak. Well, he might not have been deaf, but we get the idea in something that happens tonight that perhaps he couldn't hear either. But that God said, because you didn't believe the word of the angel, thus you now will not be able to speak until these things all come to pass. And thus he goes home from Jerusalem. Elizabeth conceives. She waits five months before she comes forward publicly with her pregnancy for the opportunity of just rejoicing in the Lord. And thus she will now give birth in her old age to John the Baptist. And now Gabriel goes on the second half of his mission as we resume in our text tonight. It's interesting that Gabriel is one of only two angels in the Bible that are given names. Now, I'm sure that there are many angels that have names. Actually, that's not true because Satan is an angel. I'm not including him uh, in it. So I guess there's three, but there's two good angels that are given names in the Bible. One is Michael, the archangel, that we see in the book of Daniel. But the other is Gabriel, who also we see in the book of Daniel. And it seems that Gabriel, in some regard, is set in charge of making sure things are ready and prepared for the coming of Jesus into the world. It was Gabriel that gave the message to Daniel that would highlight and outline the timing of events that would lead to the first coming of Jesus Christ. And then it was Gabriel who was sent to Zechariah in the temple. And now it's Gabriel who is sent to Mary prior to her uh, conception uh, of the Messiah. And so um, we begin and we pick up in verse 26. It says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so this takes place in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And we catch the context of that from the fact that she had hid herself five months in the previous verse, and now it's in the sixth month of that, Luke seeking to give a chronology, that now Mary is visited by Gabriel. We're told that he comes to her in her home town, her home city, which is a city of Galilee, by the name of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was situated about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, so it was not a coastal city, and it was considered to be really one of the slime pits of Israel. It was a very immoral place. There were brothels there. It was a place where soldiers would come in their time off and their rest times of reprieve, and it was a darkened place. That's why Nathaniel will say later on, when he hears that Jesus comes out of Nazareth, will he say, 
Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because it just had that kind of reputation. And so really it was the ghetto of Israel where Gabriel, well, well really God, finds Mary, his chosen vessel to bring forth the Messiah. It tells us that she was a virgin and that she was espoused or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Now in Hebrew society in those days, there was really three different stages or uh, yeah, phases really of marital relationship. The first was the engagement. And the engagement could take place at any time during the life of the child. Oftentimes it would be arranged even from maybe one or two years old. It would be arranged by the parents who they would marry. And at that point, they were considered to be engaged. The second phase would be the espousal period. The espousal period was one year prior to the marriage ceremony. They would enter into an espousal. And when you were espoused, you were technically considered to be legally married to the person. If you wanted to be separated from them, you would have to go through the legal process of divorce. You could not just break it off because you were leading up to that time. It was a binding contract, and they were, for all intents, married except for the fact that they would not consummate the marriage. They would both remain virgins all the way up to the time that they would have the wedding ceremony. And then then the third phase of it would be the marriage, which is when the bridegroom would come on a set day, but the bride wouldn't know the time. And he would come and there would be a wedding feast and then the two would celebrate uh, and begin their lives together. And so when Gabriel comes to visit Mary, he comes during this period of the espousal. So it's inside that year that would lead up to their wedding ceremony. Um, and it says that she was a spouse to a man named Joseph and that he was of the house of David. And that's significant because it was through David's lineage legally giving Jesus the right to be called a king from the tribe of Judah uh, that he would come into the world. And so uh, Mary, to marry Joseph, and, and that was her name, Mary. And it says um, that the angel then came in unto her And he said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with you, and blessed art thou among women. Now, if you, if you're reading, uh, like I am from a King James Bible, you'll notice that those words, thou that art, are in italics, which means that they're not there in the original language. They were added by the translators to give clarity and flow, meter to the text. But if you take them out, it would read this way. It would say, Hail, highly favored, the Lord is with thee, Blessed art thou among women. Now that word, uh, highly favored, is only used, the word that is employed by Luke, that the angel Gabriel said, is only used one other time in the New Testament. And the word means to pursue with grace, to compass with favor, and to honor with blessing. So what he's saying to Mary is he's saying that you have been pursued by God with grace, You've been compassed or surrounded by God's favor and you've been honored with God's blessing. Now, the other time that that word is used is in Ephesians chapter one, verse six, where it says of you and I that we are accepted in the beloved. That word accepted that's used in Ephesians one, six is the same word that Luke uses here to be pursued with grace, compassed with favor and honored with blessing. Now, can you imagine the reaction of Mary? who's just living her life and going through, getting ready to be married. And now she's visited by an angel who announces to her that she's been singled out by God for the purpose of obtaining his grace, to be surrounded by his favor, 
and then to be honored with God's blessing upon her life. He says, blessed art thou among women. And it says that when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and she cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Now, there's a great contrast that exists here between the reaction of Mary when she sees Gabriel and the reaction that we saw Zechariah have in the previous segment of the scripture. When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled at his presence and fear fell upon him. When Mary sees him, it seems that she's not troubled by his presence, but she's bothered by his saying. What kind of greeting would this be? And the only thing that I can gather is the reason why she would be troubled by it is because of the difference she saw between herself and what was being said of her. We're going to find out that Mary is a very humble woman. She's very lowly, and her attitude towards herself is very low, that she doesn't consider herself to be anything special. And now an angel comes to her and tells her that she's highly favored and that God's going to honor her with blessing and that she's blessed among women. And she says, well, what gives? That's not the way I see myself in the eyes of God. And I would think that if God was going to say anything about me, it certainly wouldn't be that. Can you relate to Mary in that? I hope so. If you're here tonight and you think, well, if God came to me, he would say, blessed art thou, young man or young woman or old man or old woman. But really, our attitude about ourselves, if it's proper, should always be, who am I before a holy God? And the contrast of that is because of the grace of God that's given to us through Jesus Christ, when he looks at our life, he sees something completely different than what we see of ourselves, not because of anything that's in us, but because of everything that's in him. What manner of salutation could this be? And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you shall conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus or Yahushua or Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. And he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, she was troubled with this salutation. Can you imagine what she felt like now when she's given the actual message that Gabriel was sent to give? He says to her that she's going to conceive in her womb and that not only is she going to bear a child, but that child is going to be called the son of the highest or the son of God. And then he elaborates on that to go further to say that he will be the very Messiah that was promised to be the son of David and the savior of the house of Israel and the, house, uh, uh, the savior of the world. Now, that's an incredible thing. Every Jewish young woman, especially those that would be from the tribe of Judah, their highest dream would be to bear the honor that's being bestowed upon Mary now. And now Gabriel is sent to give her this message that she will indeed be the one through whom the Messiah, Jesus, will come into the world. He'll be great, the son of the highest. He will have the throne of David and he will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. I love Mary's response in verse 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, if you'll notice Mary's response, she says to him, she says, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? She does not say, how can this be? And there's a world of difference. 
Because if she says, how can this be? Then she's, just like Zechariah, casting doubt upon the ability of God to perform something that's contrary to scientific law. But she doesn't say, how can this be? She says, how shall this be? She doesn't say, can this happen? She says, how is it going to happen? It's an inquiry. Because she recognizes before him that she has not yet known a man. She hasn't been with David in any way sexually. So how is it possible that she will do it? And God answers the question through Gabriel. He says that the power of the highest will overshadow you and the Holy Ghost will come upon you and that thing that is born of you will be holy and will be called the Son of God. Now this is the third reference in this passage that we've read since we began our study tonight where it is highlighted and emphatically declared that Mary is indeed a virgin. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is something that is absolutely paramount to uh, the Christian faith and really to Jesus' redemption of us. If there is no virgin birth, then Jesus is not qualified to be the Savior of the world and the Redeemer of mankind. And that is true for three reasons. The first reason is prophecy. Because it was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament that when Messiah comes, that he would be born of a virgin. In fact, it's one of the oldest prophecies in the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And God spoke to Eve after she had sinned, and he said that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Now, there's a problem scientifically with that right there. The woman doesn't have seed. The seed comes from the male. So when God said way back in the Garden of Eden that it would be the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent, it was a prophecy of the virgin birth that he would come from a supernatural origin. God would, again, confirm the prophecy several hundred years later through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And he said that the Lord God himself will give you a sign that the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. God prophesying in times of old that when Messiah comes, that he would indeed be born of a virgin, that is a woman that had never been with a man. And thus for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to be born of a virgin. Prophecy. The second reason is purity. And this is probably the most important reason why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. The problem with you and I And the reason why we need a Redeemer and a Savior is because of sin that exists within us. It's not sins, plural, that we commit that causes us to need a Redeemer. It's sin, singular, that dwells within us. Noun, sin. Verb sin is what we do. Noun sin is what we are. We are sinners by nature. And the reason we're sinners by nature is because of what Adam did in the garden as the first man in that one act of disobedience and partaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he did that, he brought sin upon all mankind because all men and women descended from Adam. And the blood, which Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says is the life of man, was tainted by sin when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden that day. It's interesting. Let me read to you that verse, uh, Leviticus chapter 17 Um, Verse 11, I didn't put a tab there, so give me half a second. I know you can read it. You've already read it twice, but I'm going to read it too. God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, that is the blood, to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. 
He says two things in that verse. He says that the life of the flesh is in the blood, meaning what represents our life is our actual blood. That's the way God sees it from heaven. And the blood of man is tainted because of the sin of Adam. And thus every one of us here tonight and every man and woman that's descended from Adam in the Garden of Eden was born into this world as a sinner. Before you lived a single day, before you first said no or told a lie or had a selfish attitude, you were already a sinner because of what you inherited from Adam. And the same is true for me. Now, at the same time that the blood carries the life of man and thus were fallen in sin, God said, I have also given blood to make atonement for the soul. And in the Old Testament, it would be the blood of an innocent substitute, a lamb, an animal that God prescribed and said, if you offer this sacrifice, I will accept the shed blood of that sacrifice in place of you and I'll cover your sin based upon the sacrifice of this animal. The problem with that is that animals are not men. They're not women. And it would be a temporary solution or a temporary covering. But the Hebrew writer says that it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away our sin because... The rules of redemption are man for man. Do you understand? Not man for animal. And so God accepted the blood of the lambs and the rams in the Old Testament. But it wouldn't be enough to pay for the sins of mankind in completion. There had to be another substitute. But the problem is that there couldn't be a human substitute that was completely free of sin because every descendant from Adam was tainted by the sin of Adam in their blood. And thus God had to start again. And so Jesus had to be born of a virgin and he had to have a fresh batch of sinless blood that hadn't been tainted. And then he had to live a sinless life. And what that would create is that his blood would purchase a value. By leading a sinless life, he would have saved blood, so to speak, or blood that was qualified to be accepted before a holy God because it was sinless blood. But yet Jesus didn't need sinless blood because he never sinned. He actually earned it. And so here's what Jesus did, is that he purchased the value price of redemption for all men by going to the cross. And thus, the blood of Jesus now is out there for the taking for whosoever will put their faith and trust on him. God will accept the sacrifice of Christ in place of you and I And we are then covered and we can be redeemed because of Jesus. But if Jesus isn't born of a virgin, then Jesus is prophet at best and only a martyr as he dies on the cross. But if he has new blood and he dies sinless like he did, then he qualifies as redeemer and savior. And that's what Jesus was. And that's why he had to be born of a virgin. And thus Luke makes sure we understand that Mary was a virgin when she was born. That is paramount to the Christian faith. There are some people that have a problem with it. They will believe in the historical Jesus, but they will not accept the fact that he was born of a virgin. But he was born of a virgin, and he had to be born of a virgin. And the Jesus that we profess and believe was virgin-born, and his blood was pure. And so thus the virgin birth of Jesus Christ being set forth uh, here, um, that, that the Holy Ghost will come, he will be called the Son of Man and the Son of God. And so now Gabriel gives to her a sign and then a word in verse 36. And it says, Behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she also has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Now, isn't it interesting? Zechariah asked for a sign 
And, well, I guess he got one, but it wasn't what he was looking for. Mary doesn't ask for a sign, and she gets one. She says, hey, if you want proof that nothing will be impossible with God, then just go visit your cousin Elizabeth, who is old and well-stricken in years, and who is barren, and now she is in her sixth month of pregnancy. And you'll see that God can do all things, that nothing is impossible with God. And I love the word that the angel gives to her in verse 37. And if it's not circled and underlined in your Bible, maybe it should be. He says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. I like the way the American Standard Version puts it, the old version of the American Standard. It says this, it says, for with God, not one word will be without power. Isn't that a great promise? I was last night at uh, Vassar College and I was sharing with the Christian fellowship group that was there and we were talking about the topic of growing in our relationship with God and, and growing in our love for God's word. And as I was talking to them, we were talking about this very thing, about the power of the word of God, that it is the only thing in all of the world that has the power to produce the things that it promises. It contains within it the power to perform what it says. And thus the word of God is one of the most important things that we have as Christians. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah the prophet said, is not my word, as he spoke in the name of the Lord, is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. There's nothing too hard for God. If he's spoken it, then he can do it. Now here's the problem, is that we live in a day and age that even amongst Christians, there's a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. I see it more and more. I see more and more Christians in our day that have bought into the lie that it's impossible for you to understand the Bible, that you need someone else to read it for you or explain it or interpret it in some way, and that you can't do it yourself. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If Satan can get you to believe that the Bible is of no value to you unless you're hearing someone else share it or quote it, but you're reading it doesn't do anything, then he has completely removed you from your main source of power as Christians. Because God's word is powerful and it's our food and it's our source of growth. And God moves through his word and he gives us his Holy Spirit in order to understand it and to hear his voice through it and then to work things out as we walk with him in the world and see its power performed within our lives. We need the word of God. Not one word is without power. And Mary receives the word here and she believes it. It's mixed with faith. And thus Mary responds in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from here. Mary accepts God's invitation to be the mother of the Messiah as he will come into the world. And here we come to something that we see that is very common in the scriptures. And that is this. And listen carefully because it applies to you and me just the same. To accept God's plan for our lives almost always costs the interruption and the laying down of our own plans for our lives. Think about the incredible contrast between what Mary's expecting for her future and what will become her future after this five-minute interaction with an angel. Mary's plan, no doubt, is that she's going to marry Joseph. She's probably going to get out of Nazareth at some point because we're going to find out that David, I'm sorry, uh, Joseph is a descendant of David, and he's got family in Bethlehem, which was a much greater area to be in. I mean, he had, he had a heritage like Ruth ended up with, way back in the book of Ruth. I mean, that was like the prime land of Israel. And no doubt she's dreaming, I'm going to marry Joseph, and I'm going to get out of Bethlehem. 
And we're going to someday, we're going to have land and we'll inherit some money and we'll have a family like Ruth did and a stable life and we'll have some kids. And, and she just was rejoicing in what would be her future with Joseph. But now, God comes to her and he lays out a whole different course for her life. And he says, this is what I've got planned for you. You're going to have the honor of mothering the very Messiah that was promised from the very beginning. But if you accept that invitation, here's what it's going to cost you. First of all, you're going to be pregnant before marriage. In a society that highly regards the appearance of things and the proper order of things, you're going to have to go and tell your espoused husband, Joseph, that you're with child. And I I can't even imagine what it was like for Mary to have to go to Joseph and say, I've got news for you. We're pregnant. And he knew as well as she did that he was not the father of that baby. And that would be the easy part. Because now when Joseph rolls up his sleeves and grits his teeth and says, she has to say, it's God. (laughs) And she's got to say that to her family. Now, I believe that Mary was the type of person that when people heard that, they had to think twice, even though as ridiculous as it would sound. But that's the words that she would have to say. She will have to face her parents, her friends, her society in that in that way. She's going to carry the reproach of that early pregnancy for her entire life. The historian Josephus speaks of Mary or speaks of Jesus as the illegitimate child of Mary. Later on in Jesus' ministry, when he's having a back and forth with the Pharisees, they're going to accuse him and they're going to say, hey, we weren't born of fornication. In other words, they knew full well where Jesus came from. And Mary would carry the reproach of that her whole life under the weight of the gossip of the world, looking at her and saying, look what she did. In place of settling, she will never settle down. She'll go from Nazareth to Egypt and back to Nazareth again. And then when the ministry of Jesus comes, it'll be unstable. Joseph is off the scene. We don't know what happens to him. Whether he dies young or whether he can't handle it anymore and he leaves, the scripture is silent. We don't know. But we know that by the time Jesus comes into ministry, Joseph is gone. Where did he go? She's going to watch her very son that's promised to her hang and die upon a cross. A sword piercing through her own heart as, as is told to her will happen. And then she'll spend the rest of her life being cared for by the apostles and going where they go. And this is going to come at great cost to Mary for her to accept the very honor that God is seeking to bestow upon her. But understand this. For every honor that is bestowed upon a person's life from heaven, there will be a very high price paid by them in secret. And Mary counted the cost of what was being offered to her and she accepted the invitation of God to interrupt her life that she might be a part of his plan. Now, that is not singular to Mary. See, what she's being asked is she's being asked that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, be born in her. That's the proposition. And listen, that's the same exact proposition that's given to every one of us. God comes to us in the middle of our lives when we're going on a course and we have a plan and there's something going on and then we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit knocking on our hearts. Or we hear a message that bears the truth of God's love for us through the person of his son. And we hear an invitation that says, if you will open the door, then I will come into your life and sup with you. And somewhere inside, we understand that if we open the door and we let Jesus in, that that's going to carry a cost for us. That that it's going to bring a reproach upon our lives. That we're probably going to lose our friends. That our family members aren't going to understand. That they're going to call us names. And there's going to be persecution. And if the world hated him, then the world is going to hate us. 
But yet for the very honor of being called the son and daughter of the living God to, to let Jesus be born in us by his spirit. We accept that invitation and we accept the interruption that that brings. Now, oftentimes we can feel like, oh, gosh, can I handle that kind of reproach that will come upon my life to call myself a Christian and to be outspoken for him? But have you ever considered who carries the greater reproach in that relationship? I mean, really think about it. Is it you that should be embarrassed of God or is it God that should be embarrassed of you and me? I mean, who's the one that really is marrying up in this relationship? Who's getting the greater deal? I mean, I know myself, and I know that God's not getting a very good bargain when he gets me, and I'm sure he has to answer for it all the time. God, really? Him? And yet I look at my life, and sometimes I can think, oh, what will they think? Who cares what they think? Mary accepts the invitation. Now, that's only one half of it. The second part of this is that once you've been born again, It's only a matter of time before you realize that there's more to this life than just calling myself by his name. Okay, I've been born again. Now I'm saved. But now what? God, what's your plan for my life? I mean, yes, you saved me and I'm headed for heaven, but I'm a young person or I've got many years between now and the time that I get to glory. So what did you save me for? What's your plan for me? What do you have for me to do? And listen, everyone that accepts the call of God and the plan of God after they get saved also bears a great honor, but it comes at a great cost. You look at what God did with Joseph in the Old Testament. Great honor, but it came with a great cost. The undoing of everything that was stable, everything that was normal, everything that was life to him, he laid it down so that he could have God's plan and God's honor upon his life. Moses was set to be the king of Egypt. He was next in line, but he laid it down. He accepted the invitation for interruption because he would rather, it says, he esteemed the reproach of Christ to be greater honor than the riches of Egypt. And he accepted the call. David, the youngest son of his father, content to watch the sheep in the field, but God interrupted his life and his plan. And it came at a great cost, but it bore a great honor. He became the king the greatest king that Israel would ever have. What about you and me? Many of us here, I believe, on a Wednesday night, we're probably saved. We've accepted the invitation and the interruption to say, yes, I choose Christ, whatever the cost. But let me ask you now, do you think that he saved you and I to sit in the pews and that we would just hear studies and learn things and sing songs? No. But if we'd accept the invitation for interruption, God has a plan for every one of us. But are we willing to be interrupted? Are we willing that our whole life be turned upside down and that everything that we plan for ourselves never come into fruition for the sake that everything that he has designed us to be would bear much fruit and bring glory to his name? God always leaves the ball in our court to make that choice. There's always an opt-out option with God. What do you want? Do you want your plan for your life and the best that you can do? Or do you want God's plan for your life and the best that he can do? And he lays that option before us. Now, I know that there are many of you here tonight that are suffering right now, going through things, painful things, difficult things, confusing things, things that don't make any sense to you. Let me ask you this question. If you had the choice right now to say, God, I opt out of your plan and you would gain instant relief from whatever you're going through, would you push the button? 
Or are you willing tonight, no matter what you're going through, to say, God, I believe that whatever I'm going through right now is a part of your greater plan to bring me to what you've made me to be, and thus I accept whatever interruption or discomfort you want to bring upon my life that I might become all that you've ordained me to be. Which would you choose? Mary accepts the interruption of God, a remarkable honor that she receives. Well, it says in verse 39 that Mary arose in those days and she went into the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and she entered into the house of Zechariah's and she saluted Elizabeth. So she doesn't waste any time. She says, okay, I want to see the pregnant old lady uh, hobbling around and, and, and understand uh, maybe a little bit more of what God is doing in these days. I'm pregnant by the Holy Ghost. She's pregnant at however old, year, you know, number of years old she is. So she goes with haste and she enters into the house. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary... The babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For as soon as the voice of your salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now, I love this passage of Scripture. And part of the reason I love it is because of the timing of things. At this point, Mary is just a few days pregnant. I mean, she's probably not even late yet at this moment. I mean, she went with haste into the hill country of Judah. There is absolutely no external evidence at all that she's with child. And then Luke points out, with specificity that Mary didn't even have time to explain to Elizabeth the things that took place. As soon as she said hello, the first word out of her mouth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, the babe leaps in her womb, and she speaks with a loud voice, and she says, whoa, you're carrying my Savior in your womb. That's amazing. Mary probably was like, thank you, Jesus that I do not have to explain this, (laughs) that she already knows what's going on. But it's a remarkable thing to consider that Elizabeth, by the Holy Spirit, understood and knew what was happening before Mary even had a chance to tell her what was going on. And she knew, and she calls her the mother of my Lord. She understood who her son would be, John the Baptist. And now she understands who the Messiah will be, the very son uh, of her relative, Mary. Now, notice what she says about the baby. She says, as soon as the voice of your salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for uh, joy. It's interesting to me to consider that a baby in the womb can experience a filling with the Holy Spirit, can respond to human voice, and can feel the emotion of joy. Because all three of those things are true of a baby in the womb in this passage. Don't ever believe the lie or buy into the bill of goods that says that life isn't life until it's born into this world. God doesn't see it that way. He sees it a completely other way. Life begins at conception, and we see it here. It's interesting to me to think about the the, the radical uh, agenda of those that support abortion. And and the the aggressiveness with which they're propagandizing women today. I mean, literally, they are forming groups where women will go on record talking about how empowered they felt going undergoing the process of abortion. 
literally encouraging women to experience what it feels like to, to go through that process. It's a, a sickening, it's an incredibly sickening thing to, to, to consider. And, and yet God uh, values life so, so incredibly much. And so um, Elizabeth, blessed is she that believed. And now we have the response of Mary, the Magnificat in verse 46. And it says that Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And so now the response of Mary to this uh, news that's been given to her. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty has done great things to me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. And has showed great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has hoped or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her, or stayed with Elizabeth, for about three months, probably until the end of her pregnancy, from the sixth to the ninth. And then she returned uh, now to her own house. And so Mary now responds, and these are the first words of Mary before the Lord that are recorded uh, prior to, or I'm sorry, after the announcement that Gabriel gives to her. And there's just a couple of interesting things in, in this uh, song that Mary sings. The first that you notice back up in verse 47 is that she says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. And notice that because what this is telling us is that Mary recognized and understood that she needed a savior. And that's important to understand because though Mary is indeed blessed among women, Mary is not blessed above women. In other words, there are some that would believe that Mary holds a higher place than she actually does. Now, she is to be honored, I mean, because of who she was. But she was not one that did not need a Savior. I read in preparation of this that there is actually a cross in Rome that on one side has Jesus sculpted onto it, and on the other side of the cross has Mary there, portrayed as the co-redemptress of the world. And, and that's just a horrible thing to consider. Mary needed a Savior. We see her here calling him God her Savior. We see her in the book of Acts praying with the disciples. Why would she need to do that? She would say, just pray to me. I've got the, the open door, but she doesn't do that. And it's interesting also to consider that the last words that Mary spoke in the Bible, recorded for us in John chapter 2, at the wedding feast where Jesus turned water into wine, it says that Mary was there, and the last thing that's recorded of her in the scripture, she says to the servants, she says, do whatever he tells you to do. I don't think that's an accident that those are her last words. Do whatever he, that is Jesus, tells you to do. He is our Savior. And so thus she calls him uh, her savior. The theme of the song is, is, is that God opposes the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. And she was able to say that from her experience and that he keeps his promise. You know what my favorite thing about this song is, though, that's given to us by Mary? Is that there are only five references to herself, wherein she will say me or my. But there are 18 references to the Lord himself, whether he says my God, my savior, or he or him. If you're ever measuring the quality of a praise song to the Lord, that's the criteria by which you should measure it. How many times does it glorify the me aspect, and how many times does it elevate and magnify God? 
Sometimes we'll be driving in the car and we'll be listening to, uh, you know, Christian radio and some of the songs will come on. And, and I'll just, for fun of it, and just to point it out to my kids, you know, that are listening to the songs in the back seat, I'll just start singing it along with the song and I'll go, me, my, me, God loves me, it's all about me, hallelujah, me, you know, and, and, and because that's what a lot of the songs today that are passed as worship really are. It's self-worship. It's grandizing, well, how much God loves me and how much God does for me. And that's good. I'm not, you know, taking, I'm happy for what God's done for me. But true worship is not about me. True worship is about him. True praise is elevating and venerating and honoring God for who he is and what he's done. That's the praise that God inhabits. That's true praise. And it's what Mary does here. Yes, there's a me part. God did great things for me. But it's all about him and what he's done. And that is true worship. And Mary had a worshipful heart. Wonderful woman that she is. What God found in Mary is he found a woman who was sensitive to truth and that was willing to yield all to a sovereign God. He found a woman who was humble and who saw herself honestly for what she would be. And that's necessary. I mean, if you're going to be the mother of God, you've got to have a humble heart. I mean, can you imagine if she didn't? What if Hillary was chosen? Can you imagine what that would be like? What a disaster. I'm the mother of God. You know, she would have accepted the co-redemptress uh, title, you know. But Mary never would. And, and another amazing thing about Mary is that she was a woman who very much was familiar with the word of God. That comes forward as you read the Magnificat and you see how much scripture is in there. No doubt it so much reflects the prayer of Hannah when God gave her a child miraculously. And she knew the scriptures and she knew her God. And God found in her someone who he could uh, bring forth Jesus into the world. Well, verse 57 says, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zecharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, not so, but he shall be called John. Now, John means God is gracious. We see the reaction of the people. It says that they said unto her, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and he wrote saying, his name is John. Not his name will be John, or I guess, but he says, no, already his name is John. And they marveled all. Now, it's interesting. You have a family here of Elizabeth, Zecharias, and then Elizabeth, and then John. Zechariah's name means God remembers. Elizabeth's name means God's oath. And John's name means God is gracious. And if you put the three together, the family spoke that God remembers his oath. And that's exactly what God was doing with this family as he was preparing the way for the Messiah to come into the world. And his mouth was opened and immediately his tongue was loosed and he spake and praised God. Isn't it amazing? The last words out of his mouth were doubt and skepticism. After nine months of silence, the first words out of his mouth are praise and veneration. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And thus God used the circumstances of the miraculous birth of John the Baptist and even the silence of Zechariah for those nine months. And the name that was then given to him 
so that the people would remember years later when John would come on the scene as the voice of one crying in the wilderness that this was a man with a very supernatural origin and a very supernatural destiny. And it tells us that the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, I love that verse, and I actually have it circled in my Bible because that's the prayer that I pray for my kids. God, please let your hand be with them. God, I need your hand to be with my kids. The other night... I was uh, doing a Bible time with Riley, and he's younger enough from the older three that I have to do his separate. And we were doing the the time where Solomon asks for wisdom. You know the story where God comes to Solomon. He says, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And so I, I read Riley the first part of that story where God comes to him and asks that question. I said, Riley, what would you ask for? And he doesn't know the story yet. What would you ask for if God said you can have whatever you want? And he didn't miss a beat. You know what he said? He said, a new bike. And then he elaborated. He said, I have a green bike and it has no pedals, but I need a bike with pedals. I would ask him for a new bike. He's actually been thinking about this. Like, <laughs> you know, he's, he's waited out in his mind. And so I laughed and I smiled. He's got one of those little peewee bikes that they learn how to balance on, you know, and, and, and all. You know, and, then, and then we read the story about what Solomon actually asked for, an understanding heart, wisdom, ability to discern good and evil so that he could judge the people. And, you know, and I'm explaining all these things to him. And so then I come back to him and I say, okay, Riley, what did Solomon ask for? And he kind of smirked, and he goes, he asked for a heart. And I go, what kind of heart? And he goes, a heart with holy things in it. <laughs> I'm like, my goodness, you know, how does he even know what that means? I've never said holy things, you know, but he was able to, like, kind of put all those things together. But, but I, look at, I look at him, and I say, God, let your hand be upon his life. And I see the hand of the Lord in those things. Now, he's a good kid. He lied to me tonight, so don't think that he's too good, you know, or anything. But that's our prayer for our kids. Listen, parents, give your kids the word of God. Invest truth in their future. Pray the hand of the Lord to be upon their life. We need the Lord to be in our kids. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, speaking of Jesus. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore or promised to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And so the first half of Zechariah's prophecy concerning the coming of Christ, that he will be the Savior that will come and uh, redeem and liberate Israel. And then he prophesies concerning his child in verse 76. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Now understand that that was the very purpose for which Jesus came into the world. He came to be the Savior that would redeem and cause people to be forgiven of their sins. That's the primary and really the only work of Jesus in this world. That's what he came to do. And when a person comes to Jesus Christ, they're not coming to Christ to have a better life, 
or to have what life intended to be, or to get a job, or a husband, or to have peace in their heart, so the anxiety will go away. That's not why a person comes to Christ. We come to Christ to have our sins forgiven, because we are guilty before a holy God, because we are lost and alienated from his presence, because we are separated and headed for hell, and apart from some work of redemption that happens on our behalf, we are lost forever. And Jesus came into this world to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that we might be forgiven and then set free. And redemption and forgiveness happens first. That's why we come. Then he begins to put our lives back together. And he begins to do what he's going to do within our lives. But the reason he came is to save us from our sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and was in the deserts or in isolation until the day then uh, of his showing unto Israel. The worship team can come as we uh, close the service tonight. As is happening, the, the worship team can come as we close the service tonight. <laughs> I believe that we are living. You guys can come. Come on up. I believe that we're living in days where God is again getting ready to do a work within the world. That's exactly what's happening in, in the text. Is God's about to intervene after 400 years of preparation and of silence. The world, all things being prepared for the coming of his son. And what he's doing is he's moving upon lives and he's getting all things ready for Jesus to come. And I believe that in the days that we're living in right now, we have much the same thing going on. And I believe that what God is looking for in these days more than anything else is he's looking for people that he can use as a part of his plan as he sets all things in order for his second coming upon this earth. And it may be not even bad. We might not be there yet. Maybe what God is preparing for right now is revival, which we know we desperately need. But either way, God is looking for people that are available, that will, like Mary, say, God, I'm willing that you should interrupt my life and that you would make me a vessel and an instrument that you can use to bring light and life into the world. I can't help but think of Esther as I read about Mary and how God interrupted her life. There had been a plot to destroy all of the Jews. And God had placed Esther perfectly in the palace. And he made her the queen. And Mordecai, her uncle, found out about a plan that was hatched by a man named Haman to wipe out all the Jews in the whole land. And he came to Esther and he said, hey, this is your time. God has placed you in the palace for such a time as this so that you can circumvent and undo the plan of Haman. And Esther said, no way. If I go in unto the king without being invited, he'll kill me. If he doesn't raise the scepter, I'll lose my life. And Haman looked at her, or I'm sorry, uh, Mordecai looked at her. And he said, do you think that if this plan of Haman goes through that you're going to be spared because you're the queen? Listen, if you don't go in before the king, then God's going to raise up his deliverance from some other way because God's going to be faithful to his people. But you'll have missed out on God's plan for your life. But could it possibly be, Esther, that God has raised you up for such a time as this? And Esther went in, and she was accepted, and Haman's plan was thwarted. 
And she went down in history as one who became in a type a savior of her people. Now, how might God want to use you in your world right now to be an influence for light and for his name? God's going to use whom he will use, but you miss out on the plan. Are you willing to be interrupted for his purposes and for the honor of his name? Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the test, the text and the testimony that you have before us. We thank you for all of the principles that we learn as we read its testimony to us. And we pray tonight, Lord, that you would draw close to every one of us, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us a renewed strength and hunger for the word of God, that we would grow again in our faith and our relationship with you. That, Lord, we'd sit before you in time of just waiting upon you and allow you, Lord, to look at our lives. And, Lord, have we grown stagnant? Have we refused your plan in some way? God, we repent of it. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would again revive your work within our hearts, that you would use us for your glory, and that you would light a fire in us again. So have your way in us, in Jesus' name, amen.